All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so this is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning. Good. Um, I was with you this weekend, so I've been instructed not to ask Hugo how his weekend goes because this is a <laughs> Tuesday episode, even though we record Monday morning. It's the first thing Monday morning, so it feels natural to discuss it. And Hugh keeps telling me it's not by the time the listeners we also it. We also hung out together this weekend, we, even though we're not talking about the weekend. No, we, 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 we did, and uh, we saw the uh, summer odyssey. It was almost like a festival in one kind of arena at the Garden. It was Beck and Phoenix and Wise Blood and Claro and a bunch of others. Um, and what did you? There was something to me that struck me as the mo most noteworthy thing by far of the event. Well, I just want to know what it is. Don't ask me. What, what's, it, your, what's the most noteworthy? The, the screen. They had this screen behind the stage. Oh right, yep. That was the most sort of vivid, high tech. You know, could do more cool things with it, and it literally just created an entirely new element um, to the to the show, right? And like, especially for Phoenix, where I'm not like really a fan of theirs. It made it much more enjoyable because if I was just into the songs, I would have gotten a little bored. But the visuals were so interesting and stunning that that when you combine the two, it was a great experience. Didn't you? Didn't you think Phoenix kind of outclassed Beck on the on the visuals? Um, yes, I thought Beck's visuals were, were better. I was worried that it was going to be like just Beck was going to stand there and sing. So I think it was much better than I expected. Yep. But look, and maybe this may not be true at all. But we like to attribute. We, we were saying this at, at the show. The lead singer of Phoenix, Tomas Mars, is married to Sofia Coppola, and so we then therefore surmise that she must have put together the whole visual show, evidenced by, of course, this is not any evidence at all, but there's an amazing sort of Versailles background and given backdrop and given her Marie Antoinette movie, it let us put two and two and two. Yeah, you love that. You love that Versailles yeah, thing. It did look great. It looked great. It probably, you know, none of that's true, but... Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to reference like to one thing. Concerts like that. I want to reference one other thing, which is not as cool as that, but but related to the concert. Do you remember that moment when Beck was towards the end of his set and he said, um, "Well, we're going to have to wrap things up because it costs fifty thousand dollars a second every minute we er, ever if we go over midnight or something." Like yeah. That. Now, what if he had let JD in the straight shot also <laughs> play on, on on the billing? Do you think that would have then given him more time? You just love talking about JD in the straight shot. I mean, it's one of the top ten bands of all time. That's <laughs> Jim Dolan's personal rock band. I think they're a full time band. They just like they sit pay, around waiting for him. They pay other performers for the right to open for them right so the, the, the right. eagles sell them the opening spot nice well yeah i mean shit i have this 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 podcast this bookstore yeah. that's one of the things that are, are you going to start a rock so, band bradley no i was about to say i have more than my share of vanity projects so who who am i to judge so bradley you have a um you have a press release you want yeah to there's some breaking news i'm just going to read the press release uh and then we can talk about it uh it's for release today uh, the headline is Smith Crime Family announces exciting new retail chain to debut across New York. Following up on the smashing success of the more than 8,000 thriving marijuana stores across New York, the Smith Crime Family announced the opening of an exciting new retail chain, the Cocaine Store. Slated to open at 1,500 locations across the five boroughs of New York City, Long Island, Westchester, Rockland, and Orange Counties, the Cocaine Store will offer top quality cocaine to all customers anytime, day or night. Stores will be open 24 hours. It just seemed like the next natural step, said legendary, legendary racketeer Ralph Smith. The weed shops have done so well, there's so much demand, everyone seems so happy with it, we figured, why not give the people what they really want? We want to thank the city of New York and the state of New York for making this process so frictionless. No permits needed, we don't have to pay taxes, we can sell to anyone of any age. None of our products are regulated or inspected. It's perfect. Capitalism is at its absolute best. 
The cocaine store has found empty storefronts eagerly available for lease by landlords across the city and state. Landlords hailed the new retail opportunity. Finally, things come full circle, said Josephine Jones from the Real Estate Board of New York. All of the same crime and quality of life problems that drove our retail tenants out of business are now making a dream with the cocaine store finally possible. We deeply appreciate the cooperation of City Hall and the New York Police Department especially in looking the other way at the thousands of unlicensed cannabis stores we lease to organized crime families. That really gave us the encouragement we needed to partner with the Smith family to make the cocaine store a reality. Smith family officials indicated the potential debut of other exciting new retail concepts in the next 6 to 12 months, including the heroin store, the AK-47 store, and the meth mart. For more information about the cocaine store, simply walk outside, and odds are one will be within a few blocks of your home, office, or kid's school. Signs displaying multiple varietals and origins of the now ubiquitous cocaine will be prominently placed on sidewalks and storefronts to help consumers finally access the high quality of cocaine they deserve. Shocking, huh? <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe that just, that's happening. I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the point now where we've really kind of crossed the Rubicon is they're not, not only that we have a cocaine store because of the sort of obviously smashing success and complete tolerance of the 8,000 illegal wheat shops, but that they're actually, and why not, using modern day media tactics, you know, this went on PR, out on PR Newswire to, to, to publicize it. So, Bradley, um, do you think you should build, like, a store just to, like, I mean, not obviously put any cocaine in it, but just put a store up and just, like, pretend to be doing this? Um, I do you think that would, I, would that further the cause? I, I think it would. So, so I'm sure listeners have realized by now that this is a made-up press release that I wrote over the weekend um, to, to basically drive home the point that, A, the absurdity of the city and state's position on refusal to close illegal weed shops, and, B, the natural progression. It may not lead to the cocaine store, although it might. Uh, and I'm not sure that the city would shut it down if it did, um, but it is leading already to more quality of life problems, more street crime, more vagrancy, all of that. And so um, if you actually opened one, it'd be a great media stunt. Um, I think that the effort, you know, the effort involved probably wouldn't be worth. Well, it's uh, incredible how easily people open these the weed stores. They're just like popping up like, and I mean, you, you mentioned this in a previous podcast, like, they're so similar and so like kind of conceived in this very specific way that it just seems that there's like a, a single group or some kind yeah, of like look, behind it. Like say, whether it's 2,000, 5,000, 8,000, there's lots of estimates. And of course, nobody actually knows. Um, but however many legal wood stores there are, and there are thousands to be sure, um, there's no chance that these are thousands of separate small immigrant, small business owners just struggling to make a living or people who were previously, you know, harmed by the biased cannabis laws that were on the books. Um, this is organized crime, right? When you have this many at this speed and this pace with this kind of uniformity, it is clearly organized crime. And clearly uh, they've got a friend somewhere because people are looking the other way. So this kind of sets up, uh, you know, an eventual Alvin Bragg successor, does it not? Somebody who's going to make this their case. And like if you're running for DA right now and you went around and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to focus on those weed shops. And you think that would be a pretty good I, way to get elected? I think I think you could. But it gets back to like how Rudy Giuliani became elected or Mike Bloomberg became elected, which is generally speaking, the people who vote in in both Democratic primaries and general elections in New York City are people who are typically the far left and highly entrenched special interests. So the people who are far left um, don't seem to have a problem with the illegal weed shops. Um, and so they're not, whether it's sort of super progressive white liberals in Brownstone, Brooklyn, or the Upper West Side, or uh, DSA types, or whatever else, um, they're not going to punish Bragg for it. They'll probably reward Bragg for it. So what you would have to have is, honestly, Hugo, you're a registered Democrat? Yes. So 
someone like you would have to vote in the mayoral primary and not someone like you, but hundreds of thousands of people like you that typically don't. And I'm not casting a judgment. It's too hard. We make it too hard to vote. But the only time where we see a change, the reason that Rudy Giuliani beat David Dinkins in 1993 and the reason that Mike Bloomberg beat Mark Green in 2001, uh, both times by less than 100,000 votes, I think even less than 50,000 votes, is because a huge number of centrist Democrats who normally um, would never vote in the election, certainly don't, wouldn't vote for the Republican, were so tired of getting mugged, were so tired of the city falling apart, or in the case of 9-11, were so afraid after 9-11, um, which is today, by the way, um, that they really wanted to put someone in charge who seemed like they were pretty smart and knew what they were doing and not just another political hack. And as a result, these people won. And quite frankly, Mike was a great mayor, and Rudy obviously now is a disastrous human being, but he had some <laughs> moments at mayor that were pretty good too. Um, so if you were running against Alvin Bragg, let's say you were Tolly Weinstein, who, who lost to him by a relatively few votes in the primary last time, and Tolly's a very mainstream centrist Democrat, um, she would have to meaningly inspire turnout uh, from parents. But the good news is I, I do think you can build this beyond just the weed shops, right? I think the weed shops are part of it, um, but so are the migrants. You have 10 cities on the Brooklyn Bridge, and so is the homeless problem, and so is the fentanyl problem, and so are the endless amounts of scaffolding, and so is the fact that you can't get a tube of toothpaste at CVS, any, CVS anymore without having to ask someone to unlock a case for you. I think you can build a larger quality of life campaign that could threaten Bragg, and if crime does go up, could threaten Adams as well. Uh, but with that said, for as long as the system of voting is the way it is, where it is just something that most people, whether they should or not, just choose not to do, um, things are unlikely to change. So I want to talk about two things I saw last night when I was walking home in the driving rain from the Giants game. I was trying to wash the experience off me. Did you stay at your friend's house and watch the whole game? No, we, we, my friend was renovating, so we watched at, this, at a Chicago Bears bar in Midtown. And oh, that sounds it, terrible. It was terrible. I mean, the bar was okay, but the people in there were terrible. But um, the, the, I mean, there were Cowboys fans in there. Um, they must have been happy. I, I turned uh, it off at halftime. Giants yeah. lost 40 and nothing for anyone who didn't, didn't follow that. doesn't yeah. even matter. The season's over already. <laughs> um, so I was walking home. I was walking down 3rd Avenue. It was raining like crazy. Two things I saw. One, a, a, a shocking number of passed out people on the street in the rain, right? And you're not attributing that to the Giants' loss? No, I mean, that's. I felt like lying down and just sort of sitting there for a few minutes, but I couldn't do it. Um, so so first of all, it was just shocking. And I, was just, I kept thinking, like, what's the next day after you spent the night on the, like, rain-soaked pavement, like, passed out from whatever you've taken? Like, what, what happens to those people today? Like, what's... It's, it's just impossible I mean, to imagine the next part of their lives. Yeah, I mean, by know? the way, and, and let's be clear. It, even though I don't think there should be a right to sleep on the street, and even though I don't think that we should put the needs of criminals or vagrants or the homeless or anyone else ahead of the needs of regular taxpaying New Yorkers, um, it is still fucking terrible, right? It is terrible to be addicted to drugs. It is terrible to have a mental health problem. It is even worse if you don't have either of those problems and you're still sleeping on the streets. Um, I don't think there's a huge number of people like that, but there are some. Um, and look, we should help them. That's why every Thursday I volunteer at a soup kitchen is to feed exactly those people. And so uh, uh, there's a lot that we can and should do to help them. But at the same time, what we do instead is say, well, we can't really we don't want to like disturb them or, or not respect their rights. So we'll leave them in this terrible situation. At the same time, we'll make everyone else's life more dangerous. Look, on, on the walk over here this morning, there was a guy who was mentally ill who was swinging his arm around on the street. And I crossed the street because I was sort of like, I don't want to get hit by this guy. And like, the truth is, 
that guy shouldn't be on the street. He shouldn't be on the street for his own good, and he shouldn't be on the on street for my good. Um, and so we're in this terrible kind of just malaise where we just accept the shittiest possible outcome as what has to be, and that doesn't make any sense. So if there were, there's a long answer to your question, but if there were a candidate who could wrap all that into a narrative with a solution and really drive turnout, yes, they could be bragged. Okay, so I, w I mentioned two things. There was one other thing I noticed. I saw a weed shop that had uh, been closed down by the cops, had like a sticker on about their, their products being seized. Which I'd never seen before. That must have been like a weed shop slash murder for hire or something. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what they could have possibly maybe, done. Maybe someone who just didn't know the right people. Um, okay, it was the one non-organized crime weed shop, <laughs> right? And organized <laughs> crimes having those shut down, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly, reduce competition. <laughs> That's how it happens. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about another favorite subject of yours, um, Section, Section Two Thirty. Yeah, and and the reason why is you know over the course of the week. As you know, Hugo and I both read a bunch of you know newspapers and outlets every day, and, and trade articles over the course of the week to kind of figure out what we want to talk about on Mondays. And there were three different things that to me were all interesting. And then I, the reason I wanted to talk about it is they all kind of tied back to the same solution. So the first one was a column in the Times. Was it Christoph? Nick Christoph wrote it. Nicholas Christoph. Um, yeah. About the loneliness epidemic, of which he's written about this before. Um, and the Surgeon General put something out recently saying that. The, the, the physical health impact of someone who just doesn't have anyone in their lives to talk to, and that number just keeps going up and up and up, is the equivalent of six alcoholic drinks or 15 cigarettes a day. Um, in the UK, they've appointed a, a czar to deal with loneliness because it's such a problem. Um, it, it is a huge problem, kind of, pr at least across the Western world. Um, I think in part because uh, we don't sort of treat mental health on parity with physical health, in part because... Um, we prioritize sort of career and monetary success ahead of sort of relationships and family structures and community structures. Um, but, but here's what I always think about, which is the Internet has become obviously a huge culprit in the mental health crisis in making people feel terrible about themselves and making them feel isolated and making them feel um, bad and useless and everything else. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? I remember when the internet first started thinking like, I remember my, my grandfather when he was alive, um, you know, we got him a computer and he, and it, after my grandmother died, he discovered that he liked to paint and he went, he became a student at Kingsborough Community College and he wasn't bad. He was even like in a couple of amateur art shows in, in Brooklyn. And, you know, I got him a computer and then he told me he served art in Google. I'm like, that's way too broad. That's not going to work. <laughs> but like, it seemed to me like, oh, this is good in that like, he can find, he had some friends, but he, he can find some community online with other old people who are like, you know, coping with loss and, and finding creative outlets for it and whatever else. Um, and, and I don't know that he ever really did, but, but it seems to me that now it would be impossible, right? Because now the minute he goes on there, he gets bombarded with violence, sex, pornography, like, you know, just vitriol of every kind. And the least healthy thing you could do is to go onto most social media platforms. But... If you had Section 230, which would change the way that the platforms moderate content right now, repeating this for the two people who actually aren't tired of hearing me say it yet, uh, there's a law called Section 230. It was part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And what it says is that internet platforms are not responsible for the content posted by its users. Um, and at the time when the, the internet was first getting going, that kind of was a necessary protection to, to give both investors and technologists sort of the confidence to 
to get this thing off the ground. But of course, now it turned into this totally perverse thing where if you're meta, um, you know, your job is to have the highest revenue you can so that the stock price goes as high as it possibly can. And as a result, you just want as many clicks and eyeballs as possible. We know for a fact that negative and toxic content drives more clicks than positive content. And so despite what they say about content moderation, they have every economic incentive um, to let the worst possible content go up on their sites because it makes them more money. Um, and again, anyone who says, well, that's not true, when for, for as long as there are groups on Instagram, that, on, um, Instagram, on Instagram that teach uh, teenage girls how to cut themselves and how to be you know, proper bulimics and whatever else, like, don't fucking tell me that you're trying. Um, but imagine that they were subject to the, to the rules um, that let's say the newspapers are like when Fox News had to pay $800 million about to f settle their suit with Dominion after they defamed them. Um, then all of a sudden the economic incentive changed, right? If, if these platforms are facing lawsuits of billions or tens of billions of dollars, not like the tobacco lawsuits in the 1980s, um, the, the incentive shift and the behavior shifts as a result. And all of a sudden, guess what? They figure out how to make content uh, a lot safer. So, you know, and think about this loneliness thing. One of the impacts of the failure to regulate social media and the failure to regulate the internet is not only that it has made people more lonely, but it's taken what, what could be an avenue to actually address loneliness and, and create community and makes it virtually impossible because the internet is so toxic and so unregulated. So that was the first one. Okay. The second one was uh, a court last week said that, I think it was the DC appellate court, or maybe it was the Fifth Circuit, um, that the Biden administration overstepped its bounds in trying to pressure social media companies to not post certain types of content about COVID-19. There were obviously lots of rumors about COVID-19, lots of false information. At one point, you had Trump encouraging people to inject bleach into themselves. <laughs> um, clearly, you know, the, the incredible people who've died because they just refused to take a vaccine shows, you know, the amount of misinformation that was out there. Um, and the Biden world, I don't think unreasonably said, hey, can you please sort of not say, not post, allow these things to post because it's killing people, right? Um, and the internet companies, I guess, agreed, but weren't happy about being told what to do. It resulted in litigation and the administration lost. And the reason that they lost is the same reason why the challenges to Google and Twitter and the Supreme Court around Section 230 failed, which is it is just not illegal for the platforms to allow anything they want to be posted. Um, it is immoral, it is destroying society in many ways, but you know, whether it's you know, parents uh, whose kid became radicalized by ISIS and they sued Google um, and YouTube for allowing, kind of encouraging that to happen, or whether it's the Biden administration trying to get you know, false information about COVID taken off social media platforms, they don't have that right. The law right now does not allow for parents or the president or anyone else to have any say into the content, um, the, the, the platforms are absolutely protected, um, which, you know, someone like Elon Musk who describes himself as a free speech absolutist, I think he loves that, right? But, but overall, um, you're never gonna be able to change this problem, you know, whether we're talking about a pandemic or a, a kid who's radicalized on YouTube or anything else, um, uh, unless you repeal section 230 and place responsibility on the platforms. And then the third article 
was one from TechCrunch this week about the impact of AI in elections. And it was a lot of Eric Schmidt, who's obviously a really smart guy, talking about um, all of the potential ways that AI could wreak havoc in elections. And we've already seen this year um, DeSantis use AI to put together a, a video of Trump embracing Anthony Fauci. And, you know, this could go on and on forever. <laughs> so it, it is incredibly destructive. But again, if you would repeal Section 230 and make one of the things that the platforms were liable for was um, political misinformation and the responsibility to be able to indicate what is AI-generated content and what is human-generated content, um, it will probably lead to them being over-inclusive. They will probably take more off um, than free speech absolutists would like. Um, but at the same time, it would go much further in protecting the integrity uh, of our elections. And so, you know, yet another reason why the failure to regulate these platforms, the failure to repeal Section 230, is now putting our our politics in crisis. Now, the only good news about that is if you want to get the politicians to actually do something for once, um, then the minute that they start finding themselves, you know, in, in ads where it looks like that they're embracing, you know, the enemy or uh, just look terrible in some way, that will actually spur them to action. So in a weird way, it, it may perversely get to the right place. But but this is not the way. To well, do it. given some of your I mean, imagine like the cocaine store like fed into, you know, an AI like as an AI prompt, I mean, they could just create this like amazing image of like a store right there on the street, you know, in New York yeah, City. Yeah, totally. And totally. it would look, you know, it would look like it was real. Yeah. And look, I get that then people are, well, what about parody and satire and the First Amendment? I, I, I get it, obviously. But this is why you have a series of jurisprudence that emerges. If you were to remove the Section 230 liability protection and if you were to place additional restrictions on the platforms and requirements about distinguishing between AI content and human content, um, what that would lead to is litigation. And over a period of years, different courts, ultimately culminating in the Supreme Court, will come up with different versions, different limitations, everything else. And then that will lead to a body of jurisprudence that tells us how things uh, should function. But it, it just seems like whether it's, you know, AI and politics and the havoc that could wreak in elections or the loneliness epidemic or the inability to stop misinformation about, you know, pandemic treatment and healthcare. Um, all of that is the result of the same fucking law and the same inability of this Congress um, and this White House and the White House before it. And look, both Trump and Biden called for the removal of Section 230. Biden even put it in a state of the union, but Congress won't do it. Um, and so, you know, this is all on them. And I think the reason why I keep harping on this in the podcast is most people sort of don't because they're sort of not thinking about sort of the intersection of tech and politics in the way that I unfortunately do, um, that that all of these different sort of negative outcomes uh, are the result of this one input. And uh, unless that's made clear, there's no chance of changing anything. OK, I have a scenario for you. This is not this is not Section 230 related. It's uh, it's. It's a, it's not quite as, and it's also not quite as fanciful as the cocaine store uh, scenario. Too bad. But um, so this week, last week, um, Mayor Adams uh, made a speech where he uh, really went dark in terms of the 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 crisis, the migrant crisis, and and I think his words were along the lines of like this is going to destroy New York City, um, which was a little unusual to hear out of the mouth of a you know sitting New York City mayor. Um, but it, it, it may, may or may not have been a smart thing to say, but it certainly showed his just intense frustration in, uh, in getting help from the White House, among other things, um, which has just adopted a strategy of like, yeah, sink or swim, dude, like you're on your own. Now, this is maddening to me as a New Yorker because I do think the problem is not New York City's alone, obviously. And as uh, citizens of the city and of the state, we are being asked to 
um, burden, take on this burden for, for the whole country, essentially. Um, and the White House, because um, they don't care about New York City voters or New York State voters um, for the uh, 2024 election, because New York State is a Democratic state through and through, and the Democrats will carry it regardless of almost anything that could happen, um, we can't get anything out of the White House. Nope. They don't care. Nope. So imagine this scenario. It's hard to, hard to think with like, like Adams and Hochul pulling something like this off or any of the sort of Democratic Party leaders. But they go to the White House and they say, okay, we're going to put together a uh, primary challenge, um, a Democratic primary challenge to you, you know, sort of along the Bernie lines or something like that. I mean, AOC, something, something to the left that has no real chance of like actually winning the nomination, but could really make their life miserable for several months in, in the, in the, uh, in the spring of 2024. Um, why was that? Well, just tell me what so you think of that one, scenario generally. It's a really clever idea. And again, what you're doing is sort of the classic thing we talk on this podcast, which is you're changing the political inputs to result in different policy outputs. Right now, the only political inputs are New York's in the bag for Biden, no matter what happens. So therefore, it is okay to sacrifice New York's well-being for political gain in Arizona, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, wherever. If all of a sudden there became political risk in New York, then the calculus changes. So, right. so good, good job for using. <laughs> Thank our you. I'm learning. Equation. I'm learning. Um, so a couple of things. One is, look, the leaders that we have could and would never do this because they are totally bought into the system and they have power through the current system, right? So Chuck Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader. Hakeem Jeffries is the House Minority Leader. They're both from Brooklyn. Neither are doing anything on this migrant crisis whatsoever. They're both like claiming, oh, behind the scenes, which is just sort of code for like, this is not good for me, um, so I won't do anything. Um, and so, but look, they, they've spent their careers gaining power in the system that we have. So just like they'll oppose mobile voting, you know, they would oppose this too. Um, Adams and Hochul, you know, Adams is kind of a wild card, so who knows what he would do? I mean, in a weird way, what if he throws his own hat in the ring? Uh, the problem is I don't think he's, his approval rating is really high enough to present any sort of threat. But, um, but yeah, and I guess the way that you would do it politically and substantively if you were really trying to make this work is you wouldn't create sort of a New York-specific opponent. Um, you would invite Joe Manchin to New York and have him tour all the migrant facilities and have him hear from all the people how, how it's destroying the city's budget. And what Adam's absolutely right about is, you know, we're at, what, $12 billion in spending now? The New York City budget's a little over $100 billion. So now we're talking more than 10%. 116 of, is the new proposal. Yeah, so, right. so it's around 10%. And, like, that will lead to cuts in sanitation, in law enforcement, um, schools. At, at schools. And then, by the way, that Adams isn't wrong because, look, 50,000 people or something like that pay 50% of the taxes in New York City. And all 50,000 people on that list are highly mobile. Most of them have homes in other states already um, and could easily move out of New York. Maybe not those in real estate, but pretty much every other industry. And, yes, there's uh, a tolerance for dealing with shit to live in New York City because it is such a great place and it is so exciting. But the value proposition has to reach a certain level. And if it falls below that level, then just like everything else we talk on this podcast, you know, inputs and outputs shift. And all of a sudden the inputs are, this place isn't worth it. I'm paying a huge amount of money in, in mortgage or rent. Uh, I'm paying incredible number of taxes. Uh, I'm dealing with crime. I'm dealing with, with homelessness everywhere. I can't get fucking toothpaste at CVS. Um, and everything else, people say, fuck it, you know, I'm going to move to Florida or South Carolina, whatever it is. And I get it. I don't want to live in those places. There's that famous quote, you know, from some hedge fund manager saying the problem with living in Florida is you have to live in Florida. Um, and I get that. But but it is not 
there's elasticity here, right? It's not inelastic, despite what the far left seems to think. And there does come a point where people will say, the value proposition's not here, it's not worth it, we're not gonna stay, and that's how cities like Detroit, Baltimore, Newark, Cleveland fell apart, and despite you know various PR efforts to the contrary, never really recovered. Maybe we see a little bit right now in Detroit, but 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 not really. So um, Adams isn't wrong. Now at the same time, he's also to blame in large part here too, because um, if you were to uh, look at his handling of this crisis. You know, he gave a $432 million no-bid contract to cronies who had no experience whatsoever in, in, in dealing with migrants or these situations. And so entrusting him with lots of money doesn't inspire a lot of confidence either um, because he hasn't really shown the ability to do anything with the money that would really be beneficial. Um, but I think his complaints are right. And I think that if you want to execute your idea, so Manchin is flirting with the idea of running on a third-party line for no labels which is a third-party group that um, has the ability to access, or maybe in some cases already has, um, ballot lines to the presidential election in 2024. Um, it, it would be disastrous, in my view, if Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema or anyone like that were on the general election ballot, because it would probably mean electing Donald Trump president. So I certainly don't want to see that happen. But at the same time, Democrats are legitimately afraid of this, and for good reason they should be. And so if all of a sudden New York political officials started playing footsie with Manchin and with no labels, I think that's what- So that's where you'd go to the middle, not to the left, like if you were going to yeah, steal my yeah, idea. Yeah, be, be, because ultimately, you know, the, the view from the far left is just that we should be, you know, happy to have the migrants and just housing them and feeding them. Right, but the far left does want federal support for it. They, they, they do, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, I've been calling for a New York City or a New York State work permit um, because we have this, and Mike Bloomberg had a great op-ed in the Times over the weekend about this. Um, we have this cr crazy disparity where we're paying for something on average of like $400 a day for 60,000 migrants to be housed, let alone fed and everything else. Um, we have industries like health healthcare and hospitality that have huge vacancies that desperately need people and they don't need to necessarily be English speakers. Um, and we have migrants who desperately want to work and came here with the intention of working. And if you put A plus C plus A and B, C together, what you would have is a better economy, a better workforce, and net new tax revenue, not tax revenue going the other direction and then cutting into quality of life, which then cuts into the tax base. Um, and so it is very obvious that this should happen. Um, I think that you're starting to see support for this pickup. There was a state senator, Zellner Myrie, who echoed our call for a New York City work permit. Um, you saw Hochul call for expediting work permits for the migrants. She didn't threaten to do it herself, but she is creating out of her Department of Labor a uh, kind of job board that would show specifically um, the openings that are available um, and that could hopefully eventually match people to those openings. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that there is sort of growing support for this. But the, the best thing you could do for New York City and for the migrants uh, would be to let the migrants work. Um, I haven't seen the far left really sort of lead the charge on that. So therefore, I don't think that you, they're your best um, kind of group to work with on this idea. Um, this is one of our hard pivots. Um, there was a story NPR ran last week on yeah. mobile voting. Uh, not a good story. I would give it a zero yeah. out of 10. Unless we go negative. Then like maybe a minus Yeah, 19. okay. Tell us what happened there. Um, the reporter who, his name is Miles Parks, who, by the way, has done some other pieces on mobile voting that were balanced. They weren't like overwhelmingly positive, but they weren't overwhelmingly negative. 
basically wrote a piece just saying that it wasn't in any way like any attempt at objective journalism, just like, I don't think mobile voting should be allowed, and here are a bunch of cybersecurity experts who agree with me, um, and it's a terrible idea. He gave us basically no space in the story, attacked me personally. Jocelyn Picardo, who runs the Mobile Voting Project, was quoted at the end, but her, he, all he did with her quote was saying, here's why she's wrong, and then he you know, used someone else to try to debunk it. It was a horrible case of journalism, um, and the thing that's so crazy is, if you're NPR, all the shit that you whine about all fucking day on your on your broadcast, how politics are too screwed up, how we can't get anything done, how we're, the climate is, is, the planet is warming, how there's guns and shootings in schools, all the stuff can never get fixed unless we have mobile voting, unless we change the inputs. And then here they are, you know, just undermining it. And this is part of the problem we have, just like we have politicians who are so desperate and so self-loathing and so insecure that they will put their own sort of psychological needs way ahead of the public good. Um, you have academics, same thing, just desperate for relevance, desperate for their mom to see them quoted on NPR or whatever it is, who know that if they say, oh yeah, that seems like a pretty good idea, let's give it a try, that's not newsworthy. But if they're like, this is terrible, we will stop it, and here's everything bad about it, um, then they get attention. And Miles Parks knows that if he puts out balanced journalism, he might be good at his, making good at his job, he doesn't really get attention, right? And when he does something totally one-sided, he gets lots, lots of quick clicks and retweets, and effectively he has the same incentives as Mark Zuckerberg does with Meta on around Section 230. And so, um, you know, we have this sort of world that we have built where it's so zero-sum and it's so every man for himself, every person for themselves, um, that everyone puts their own individual needs and good ahead of the public good, and we have a society that's literally falling apart at the seams, and people like Miles Parks and Ron Rivest, who was the lead academic quarter in this, are literally contributing. Is he to a that guy you've like country. crossed swords with him before? That guy, Rivest? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we created a uh, working group at Berkeley that I funded um, to try to help develop the right technological standards for mobile voting, and he was on that working group, and then he totally imploded the whole thing. We had to shut it down. Um, he is seeing this. Like, let's just not even consider this idea? Yeah, What's yeah. his point? It, it, it could never work. It's too dangerous. Uh, all, all kinds of nonsense like that. Like, seemingly just completely fucking clueless or just doesn't care about the fact that society is literally falling apart and the only solution is to radically increase primary turnout. Um, and so we had to shut it down because he completely imploded the entire thing and it became completely useless. They didn't, wouldn't give us any useful standards to work from. The thing I don't understand, e even from the critic's perspective, is like, I understand people having criticisms, right? And saying like, oh, we have these concerns and you know, you really need to make sure it does this. I don't understand someone just being like, it can never work. Like well, who, who could even imagine like having, how, well, how could and, they know by that? The way, like, it, it can never work can't be the standard, right? We, we have paper ballots right now, which have all kinds of problems. We literally got George W. Bush in the Iraq war because of paper ballots. We have voting machines, which have problems all the time. Us New Yorkers certainly know that. We already use our phones for our health care, our love lives, our financial transactions. So the notion that we can't use it safely for voting is absurd. Uh, I spent $10 million of my own money to build mobile voting technology that we're going to roll out next year and make open source. That is far and away not only the best election technology system ever built, but vastly safer than both paper ballots and voting machines because we're able to address all these weaknesses that they have through the technology. Um, and and so, other yeah. countries are starting to use it. Like things are happening. Like yeah. it's not like you're going out on some crazy limb all by yourself. Well, I think other societies, you know, both for the reason why the U.S. is unique in both its exceptionalism and it's an exceptional trouble is that we are so zero-sum game. So look, whether you're Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Kanye West or Ron Rivest, that rhymes, you know, I didn't mean for it too, um, this is why 
we may not be one country in 25 years. And by the way, just to finish, to go back to your, or finish the point on, um, on Adams and, and migrants, there is a world where New York City at some point says, you know what, why the fuck are we part of this country? We get ignored completely. The Republicans punish us wherever they can. The Democrats take us for granted. Let's be Singapore. We can be a city state. We, we export vastly more money to the rest of the country and the rest of the world than we take in from them. Um, so who the fuck needs them? You know, we're better off on our own. And look, I don't want that to happen, but at some point, does that become a logical conclusion? It does. And so, again, I know that Joe Biden's thinking about the 2024 election. He's not concerned with what happens in the U.S. You know, as much 20, 30 years from now and so on. Um, everyone's focused on sort of their own immediate needs and nothing else. But that's where we're going to land. Um, are you going to read the Elon Musk book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, at least I'm going to start it. I have my policy. If after 40 pages, I don't like a book, I stop reading it. Although Walter Isaacson's a great writer, so I suspect that. Have I, you read most of his big biographies? No, but I read the Steve Jobs book. And okay. I, I, I thought that was fantastic. No Einstein? Uh, no, no. Um, but, um, you know, so I think I'll probably find it engaging because I suspect that he's, you know, done a good job with it. He, here's the, the point I wanted to make. Oh, I asked you go to ask me about this. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't make it sound like that. I, I dreamt up the, that question on my own. in the fourth wall. Um, is, you know, obviously this book's getting attention. People are talking about it. And, you know, there was a piece like in the Times today, I forget who wrote it, kind of decrying how terrible of a person Elon Musk is. And, and I think the problem that we make is that we conflate qualities that we admire with morality and then get disappointed when it turns out not to be true. So Elon Musk is an absolute genius entrepreneur. He is a visionary. He is an incredible business person. He is great at building technology companies. He has achieved tremendous success. Tesla has be, really led the way on the electrical vehicle movement. SpaceX, you know, is putting satellites into space at a higher rate than any other company by far. Like his success is real. At the same time, that has nothing to do with the kind of person he is, right? So it is perfectly possible for him to be a brilliant entrepreneur, a brilliant technologist and innovator, and a bad human being, right? Who doesn't give a shit uh, about people's rights and doesn't give a shit about, um, you know, how society fares broadly beyond his own narrow conception of it. And you know what? That's t entirely logical and possible. One is not really correlated to the other. And yet we do this thing where either A, we say shame on him because he's, you know, a false prophet. He's claims to be all these great things and he's not. And so that's like an endless amount of fucking punditry. And the truth is like, it, these two things aren't logically linked in the first place or the opposite, which the far left tends to do, which is, oh, if you have those qualities, if you have made a lot of money, if you have innovated and created new things, you're automatically immoral, unethical. I get this shit from the far left on, on a much lower level. And so like, um, and that's equally facile, right? So just like, I just think the intellectual laziness that we're gonna see around this Elon Musk thing on both sides is, is gonna be so significant that the most noteworthy thing is, is not Isaacson's book about it, but just to me, you know, uh, the exposing like how sort of facile most of our sort of intellectual cognizant they are. Um, so we have two last things. Um, we have a listener question which um, inspired a, uh, a a new feature we're going to have here on the podcast. So Bradley, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so thank you to David Burke. David's a listener. He wrote to me uh, with a question he had about uh, his local schools and kind of problem they were having and, and any advice to deal with it. And I wrote him back and we, we went back and forth on it a bit. And I realized, like, there's no reason that um, we can't do that more broadly and regularly. So I would say that if you have a 
political issue, business issue, community issue, in which the types of things I talk on this podcast or the types of skill sets you need to deploy um, to fix it, and you want my advice, just write to us, um, you know, uh, Bradley at firewall.media. Um, and uh, if you're cool with it, we'll talk about it on the air. And we'll we'll give solutions. Uh, you know, this is something that Touch Strategy charges an incredible amount of money for, and I'm <laughs> offering this for the low low price of zero. Um, and so, it's just yeah, like this podcast, to yeah, do. exactly. So I, I don't know if there will be a lot of demand for it or not, but um, if you'd like to follow David's lead, um, you know, I think that'd be a fun segment. Okay, recommendation of the week. Yeah, I read a book. Uh, I had a couple, but but the main thing is I, I read a book called the. Um, Science and Art of Longevity by Dr. Peter, Peter Atia. Do you know him? Nope. So he is a longevity expert, but what I like about him is he's not one of these people, he's not trying to sell you anything. It's not like he's saying, oh, if you follow this diet or buy these supplements, then you're going to live to 130. It's a much broader-based thing where he does a couple things in the book. The first 60% or so, I would say, is devoted to sort of his concept of medicine 3.0, uh, which he sees as sort of the next stage of medicine compared to where we are today, which he calls medicine 2.0. And I think his point is in medicine 2.0, we sort of have broad-based diagnosis and treatment. So, you know, someone will be, will be diagnosed with cancer, and then once they're diagnosed with cancer, we will then apply the specific, uh, you know, chemotherapy and radiation, other treatments to them. Um, and his point is this person never had to get cancer in the first place, um, and that it, it, we can use sort of expanding technology uh, and testing to be far more specific on the risk that people face, spot problems years and years before they're spotted right now, treat them, and also just change general behavior um, so that the likelihood of developing heart disease or cancer or Alzheimer's or diabetes um, is a lot lower um, in the first place. And then the other part of the book is his specific thoughts on four things, exercise, nutrition, sleep, and mental health. Um, and it's really interesting, right? Like, I don't know if I agree with all of it. Um, he seems to exercise to a, what to me is an insane degree. I think it's like 15 hours a week or something like that, which just feels like a lot. Uh, I work out five, six days a week, and I think I'm at five hours a week or something like that. So, uh, and I feel pretty, pretty healthy, and the metrics would, would agree with that. Um, but nonetheless, his point is that exercise is the, in his view, single greatest um, tool to prevent both physical decline and cognitive decline, and that if you were to exercise continually and regularly in the right ways, which is a mix of, of cardio, weights, and stability, um, that you can actually ward off things like cancer or Alzheimer's or a heart attack. Um, second was nutrition. What I liked about what he wrote, again, wasn't like, oh, we have to have this diet or that diet. Um, his underlying point is one that I think most nutritionists would not like because it sort of doesn't help their business model, which is... Um, Good nutrition can't help you nearly as much as bad nutrition can hurt you. So it's more on what to sort of stay away from than anything else. But I think the other point he makes is that in his view, and I think you have this view also, Hugo, um, we need a lot more protein um, than we're getting in our diet right now. He thinks we need, you know, two and a half to three X, kind of the current recommendations. Um, he is a fan of animal protein. At one point he went vegan and found that didn't work well for him. Um, also increased fiber is a, a big part of his view. So that's second. Third is sleep. Uh, his view is we need seven and a half to eight and a half hours a night and gets through all the different cycles of it and why this is necessary. Um, I agree with him that, that the sleep you get has a just massive impact on your physical health and your emotional health. There are days where I'm sort of feeling bad mentally and emotionally and I realize, you know what, it's just because I need sleep. And like until I get more sleep, it's not going to really change. So let me just sort of get through the day and get to bed as early as I can tonight. Um, and the fourth was mental health. And what I really appreciated about his book is 
he's had a lot of mental health struggles personally, and he was very transparent about those and made himself very vulnerable and really talked about his inpatient treatments that he's had to have and his psychiatric problems um, and kind of how and why he became that way and what he's doing about it. And I think it really did drive home the point that if you're not taking care of yourself from a mental health standpoint, you can work out all day, you could eat perfect, you could sleep eight hours a night, and you're still uh, going to be in bad shape, both physically, because there is a huge connection, like like uh, the certain general said on the loneliness thing earlier, you know, loneliness is the equivalent of his view of six drinks or 15 cigarettes a day. But also, you know, if, if you lift 140, but you're miserable every second of it, like, what's the fucking point, right? There's, there's no reason to that in the first place. So um, I thought it was a great book. He has a medical practice that includes a New York City office. I asked Chelsea to see if she can get me in to see him or someone who works for him. I, I doubt they're taking new patients. But uh, if that does happen and I learn more, I'll report back on it. Excellent. Bradley, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.